price drop? Time to shop. Get to a Nordstrom Rack store today for first dibs on new markdowns. Now score even more, up to 70% off brands everyone loves at Nordstrom Rack. Denim, dresses, sneakers, tops, and more. Plus, get genius deals on jackets, sweaters, and boots for the whole family. Shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and save up to 70% with new markdowns. But hurry, deals this great won't last. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody, it is I, your floating hoverboard wizard. That's right, I'm a talking hoverboard. I don't work on water. <laughs> I'll also never really exist. But that is it. It's me, the Holden, the talking hoverboard wizard. Ta-ta for now. And I'm Vern, the lovable son of Doc Brown. It's me, Vern, named after author Jules Vern. Hey, Elizabeth Shue, look at my dick. Look at my dick, Elizabeth Shue. Hey, looky here, looky here. I'm a dirty little boy, dirty little boy. I'm in the movie. I'm in the movie. You can't erase me. I'm in the movie, dirty little boy. And if you feel like this introduction for this episode was weird, that is because we are merely reflecting the weirdness of the Back (laughs) to the Future sequels. Because they're so damn weird. And it's such a funny thing. This is the one of the most uneven, strange franchises of uh in franchise history. And I think that's it's, just because like there's so it's you say uneven, but it's like weirdly consistent also almost too consistent some might argue in a sense almost the, like they were trying too hard to like tie all these different things together and bring all this stuff back from the first movie and in a way that made it insanely complicated especially in the uh, second film it's something that i don't think we've ever at least as adults never like truly reinvestigated or reengaged with it's just back to the future the cool movie trilogy with like the fun snappy dialogue and the great comedy and like haha cool i remember the cartoon it was fun i think kind of like everything yeah. everything about well, it and then and shit for kids hoverboards the the tiny pizza Flying cars, the flying cars, like all of this stuff can just happen at you as a kid. And you're like, cool. And then you go back and like, what is this weird? The first 20 minutes or whatever, half an hour of Back to the Future Part 2 is the thing you remember. Yes. And then it becomes this dystopian nightmare. And then it becomes Avengers Endgame. And and, and it's three different movies is what we decided on the Sunday study session while we all watched it together is three different movies shoved together together. And it takes these bizarre turns, but it also has some of the most iconic, like, besides, like, the DeLorean and the flame tire marks and and the clock tower, it has the most iconic elements from the series with the hoverboards, with, um, and that whole chase scene, that whole opening, the Jaws, digital Jaws coming down, Jaws the shark, not, uh, like, the... Not the mouth. Uh, and all that, Jaws 19, all that stuff, 
happens, but it also just happens like right in the very beginning of the movie. And then the rest of it is just this like total what the fuck in every way. And then follow up. It's the third movie, a never a rarely before done two sequels filmed at the same time, uh, you know, kind of built in trilogy. I remember being a kid and like jaw dropping, like being being shown a trailer for the third movie at the end of a second movie. Yeah. And the, the end result of the th- and so the summation, the finality, the like, let's bring it home is this slow plotting analog Western movie without any flying cars. Yes. With like barely a hoverboard in sight. It feels just like, like a weird step backwards in terms of momentum and whatnot. And yet it's actually a stronger film structurally and more in line with the first film structurally than the second. But the second, just a testament to the second movie and what it meant to me as a kid. It is one of the only movies maybe that I would just watch that first section. And as soon as they got out of that first future section, I I would switch to something else like regularly. If it would show up on HBO or whatever. Honestly? Okay, this is my bold statement. The whole movie goes downhill at the exact second after uh, Leia Thompson takes out the hydrated Pizza Hut pizza. Yes. Out of the, and that's it. After that, it's after just that, what the fuck world. It's what the fuck world. And it's so weirdly dark and dystopian. And I get that they, it's, it's as if they said, hey, let's take the very first section of the first movie where everybody's miserable and drunk and like, everything's terrible for Marty McFly. And let's make that like most of the movie. You know what I mean? Like for the sequel, it's so weird. It's like, that's not the part we like everyone being miserable. And it's, and I said it in the thing and I I feel like I referred to too many things as a stress stream lately, but man, come on. Everything past that fun future part in the beginning is a weird fucking stress stream that just makes you so anxious and uncomfortable. Like when he gets fired by the guy with the big, you, you're fired on the screen. And, be, you know, that whole section oh. is so, like, stressful and upsetting. Just, it's Flea. It's Flea, yeah, Flea out of nowhere. And his name is Needles for no reason. We don't know why his name is Needles. Well, in the comic books, there's actually a very in-depth Needles origin story that, let me tell you, did not need to exist. But it's Flea, he's Needles, everything's weird and dumb. And, like, uh, so much of what's, like, weird about the movie kind of reveals itself when you realize the backstory because the entire shape of this picture, this entire arc is almost set into motion when weird actor extraordinaire Crispin Glover just decides Uh I want more money and I want like script approval and the lengths that they, the filmmakers go to just like spite him. Spite him. But it's two things. It's that. And it's the fact that at the end of the first movie, they have Marty McFly's girlfriend get into the car with him and Doc and say it's about your kids. And that totally sets off this issue for them from the very beginning of the script writing process. Because weirdly enough, it is like one of the greatest get you hype for a sequel endings of a movie of all time. And yet they didn't have a sequel in mind. And so they had to completely figure out how they were going to incorporate Marty's girlfriend into the film, how they were going to make it about his kids And then Crispin Glover shits the bed on them and they get pissed about it. And then instead of just like recasting that part, which I get it, Crispin Glover's so over the top 
that like it would be a hard it would be difficult shoes to fill but at the same time maybe recast it instead of what we will describe eventually is the lengths that they go to to just rip off his likeness completely which literally <laughs> led to changes in legalities changes in clauses and contracts and union contracts that would disallow this sort of thing in the future i mean it really is a wild wild swing that i'm not really sure why they took it but when all things are said and done there's something like so bizarrely wholesome about this franchise that it is like despite all the conceits and despite all the weirdness there's like a familiarity about it that any back to the future story there's going to be Doc, there's going to be Marty, there's going to be some tannin across all ages. And like, it's how just these like, I don't know, let's say I'm just ball, just saying a ballpark figure, but like just t- 10 individual Hill Valley residences. So it's like, oh, we got to have a Principal Strickland. We got to have a Mayor yeah. Goldie. We got to do all these things that with... This entire, like, franchisable thing where there's been sequel games, sequel books, sequel comics, and, like, it's all based on this one weird, like, city block. Like, yes. it's such a bizarre, and it's, like, family-friendly, but a little bit dirty. Like, it's so weird. It's so weird. Here's one more thing before we get into the making of that may- is what I feel like makes the sequels weird and feel a little off from the first film. In the first film... Crispin Glover's character uh, and Marty McFly's father was the character, the flawed character with an arc that has mm-hmm. the, the growth. And it's not them. It's not Marty or Doc. Marty, or, Marty and Doc are are on the level. They're like they're they're not they're they're flawed, but they're not ridiculously flawed. They're flawed. But Marty they're, learns nothing at the end of the first movie. He yeah, Marty bends learns the nothing. universe Doc, to his will. Doc learns nothing. They're there to fix things. They're the fixers. But in the sequel, starting with the first sequel, they have they they make the choice that I think was incorrect uh, in saying that we need to make Marty the flight flawed one for this one, and he's going to have an arc, and he's he. So then they weirdly take this character in a in a weird sideways swing and say, oh, he's like decides to be greedy with this sports almanac, and all of a sudden he's like in, in it for the money, which I feel like was a mistake. I feel like they never should. Well, they, they never should have done that. They could have done something with that, but then the entire half the movie is just the Biff show. Yeah, and like Tom Wilson is very—he's almost too good. The way that he kind of explodes, like kind of a bully, you know, just a classic high school lug, to like murderous, yeah, but he becomes monster yeah, man. He becomes a murderer. And I mean that's so so it's so over the top for what this friend what this thing was from its roots, but also but but still it's Marty's from a flaw pro, from a from a base psychological level though I kind of get it where in the minds of like Bob Gale and Bob Zemeckis who are themselves um, kind of this fusion of Doc and Marty in which they are like uh, cr- uh, almost scientists in the way that Bob Zemeckis his entire career has like strove to uh, work with special effects. And computer graphics and like kind of everything he's done from uh, Roger Rabbit to uh, Forrest Gump to the Back of the Future series to his weird forays into CG with like Beowulf and uh, what's the Polar Express. Like he is also a mad scientist in a way. And yet he's also kind of this cool teen that's rebelling against his like parents who, you know, said he could never be a director. 
So like, who is the enemy of both the nerd and the creative musician class? The jock. And so, so much of the fucking, these movies, the psychic energy is just the ever-present threat of just a large, physically capable male and the darkness that they are capable of. And it became definitely arguably too much about Biff in the second, in the second film. But also I would say in the first, in our last episode on this movie, they said they didn't want, they wanted Marty McFly to be accidentally pushed back in time. Because if they had him do it for his own means, i.e. for greed, to try to, like, make his life better, it would have to bite him in the ass. And they didn't want that this story to be about that. And then they totally break their own rule in the sequel with Marty, make him greedy, make him make a greedy choice by grab, by buying that sports almanac that sets off the turn of, turn of events of Biff discovering it in the trash and all this kind of stuff that, that uh, of course, has to, according to script writing rules, Bite Marty in the ass, but that makes Marty this flawed character in a way that I don't think works for what this franchise was about. And then in the third movie, they do it with Doc because it's Doc's own. And at least it's not him being a greedy piece of shit. Well, it is kind of him being greedy in the sense that it's because he wants to get with this, this. He falls in love with this woman. Right. But that said, it's still at least in the name of love, not in the name of I could become a millionaire with this fucking sports almanac. The plot premise that that um, again just makes Doc this flawed character, and I think every movie they should have picked someone else in the family, someone else in the world, and mm. it's some mistake that they make in a point in time that they have to go back and fix. That should have been the rule for the whole thing, and instead they made Marty and Doc super flawed. And and uh, and I think that's what threw the whole thing in a very Back to the Future way. It threw the whole thing off course. Uh, <laughs> I think it's because Doc and Marty are just two uh, like pretty bog standard protagonist archetypes. They are co- they are almost like cartoon heroes, and I think that's yeah. why the animated series works so well. Right? Is M- Marty is the prototypical cool teen protagonist? He's always got a you know he's quick on his feet. He's got. Uh, he can, you know, he thinks he's a ladies' man. He, like, does all these things that we're used to. And Doc Brown is just the most standard mad scientist, like, uh, grandpa figure you could ever write. A pastiche of a pastiche. And, like, we don't need them having their moment of darkness and doubt. Like, if... Yeah, I don't need it's to really see them hard. be a gr- greedy piece of shit. I don't need that. In fact, it breaks the whole thing for me. And that's why the sequel is so weird. And I feel like this is almost the end of the episode at the beginning, but you know what? I had to get it out. I've been thinking about it so much since we've been watching you know, Hold movies. in. Let me, let me say out loud why we are so rocked by this. And it's <laughs> because these are feelings that we had completely the same feelings, like in totality, that we had as children, as actual children engaging with these movies. These weird, just like, before we could even understand the art of filmmaking, the art of screenwriting, before we could even articulate why we thought something was off, we were watching these movies and going like, there's something off. off. Yeah, there's something, there's something weird. Off. It's like there's something cynical. That's what it is. There's a cynicism in the second one. And then I think they bring the heart back in the third one, but it's almost it's like a little too little too late. 
for that, you know, I, I think that Whew. that's what it is. So oh, I wish that I could make a sequel where you and I get into a DeLorean and we go back in time to Bob Gale and Zemeckis back in 1988 or whatever it was. And we sit down and we we fix the sequels. Let's make just it, give, just give Crispin the million dollars. I yeah, know he was an asshole. Give him the million dollars or recast him or cut him out of the movie entirely. You're going to spend one. Forty million dollars trying to work around the fact that he's not in this. Just fucking give him the million dollars and make a normal movie. If you want to do the sports almanac thing, we'll figure it out. But we can't make it Marty's greed that causes the sports almanac to get into Biff's hands because that fucks the whole thing up. There's also uh, from the Back in Time documentary. They sat down with uh, Dan Harmon, uh, who actually worked under Robert Zemeckis for a little bit, and he just casually kind of gave up the uh, the ghost when he was just like. Well, you know, it took them seven years to work on the screenplay for Back to the Future Part One, and now it's taught in colleges as the perfect screenplay. Right. They had eight months yes. to write to both two. of these movies. To write two. Let's get into it. I love the story. It's so fascinating, man. It tells the story of, I think, the Hollywood system in America in the 1980s as well. So let's get into it. Um, so Zemeckis had not had not planned for a sequel, as we mentioned before. Of course, the giant box office success that was the first movie led to immediate plans for the second film. I don't think we spoke about this in the last one, but this is a pretty amazing little stat here. The film held the top slot at the box office for 11 out of 12 weeks. And according to Universal head, Sid Sheinberg, uh, he said, I don't think there's been another movie that can lay claim to that since maybe like an Avengers Star Wars joint. original Star Wars original Star was Wars. another uh, phenomenon where it was people going back and back going and back, back and again. Back. Yeah. And that's what this movie did. So, of course, they are they approach the scale and say, of course, as uh, shitty networks executives would say, we're going to make a sequel with or without you guys. And that, I think, spun them into a tailspin because I think they really did have such a love for their property that they created. So Zemeckis' only demand was that Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd return, uh, which they, of course, obliged as we all know, and Bob Gale came back to create the story. Scheinberg also put into their contracts in the way early on before there was a third film in discussion that uh, they put what everyone would earn for a third film, which essentially kind of just set that in motion as well, that they would probably do a trilogy. One regret that they had, as we again mentioned, but I have a good quote from uh, Gail, Bob Gale about it, is that they had Jennifer in the car with Marty and Doc Brown. Gail said, because when it came time for us to try to figure out what part two was going to be about, we kept saying, what are we going to do with Jennifer? She's not a very well-drawn character. And we ended up knocking her out for most of the picture, which again, just is a weird move, right? I mean, don't you agree that knocking the girlfriend out, like from the very beginning, that you could feel that choice? For the script writers as when a way to get around wave a magic, a magic amnesia gun at her face. Yeah. It, <laughs> and it then is. literally leave her in a garbage pile. Yeah, I almost wish they just acted as if they never said that at the end of the first movie and just made their movie. You know, well, they, you know, the the surreal thing where they, you know, went back and reshot the beginning of the or the end of the first Let's movie. Let's talk about that because it's so weird. They uh, no okay well let's let's get to the production because okay so, okay okay uh, Bob Gale is pretty much left to his own devices um, because at this point Zemeckis is just completely swallowed up by the Who Framed Roger Rabbit project which uh, when we eventually do our own episode our own episode about this is one of the most complicated and insane movies ever filmed to the point where like Zemeckis is kind of 
traumatized by this process. So Bob Gale keeps kind of working on um, on this project. And what he ends up with is kind of this uh, first draft story where he Marty ends up in the 1960s at the end and uh, is mistakenly arrested for protesting the Vietnam War. Uh, Gail said, Lorraine is a flower child and ends up going to jail. And the question is whether Marty is going to actually be conceived. So we were recreating a lot more elements of the story of the first movie. We thought it would be fun to see Doc Brown smoking dope. And there was a whole bunch of great 60s stuff. Zemeckis read this and liked it. But then he got the idea that since we have a time machine, we can do something nobody has ever done before and actually have our main character go back into the events of the first movie. So you get the first movie from a different point of view. That was such a brilliant idea that the Avengers did it too. And then Zemeckis also has this idea of like, oh, everybody always thinks about how they would go back in time and get like... um, uh, all the res- you know, go back in time and bet on all those games or bet on the stock market and become a millionaire and want to incorporate that. Gail said, we had a challenging dramatic problem in the sequel and that we ended part one promising the audience that there was some issue with Marty and Jennifer's kids. So we had to pay that off. But at the same time, we said to ourselves, we've just written a movie where it said that the future isn't written yet, that a change can make at one point in your life. A change you make at one point in your life can result in a better or worse future for you as exemplified by whether George stands up for Biff or not. So what do we do with that? Because we can't just have Marty turn to Jennifer before they get in the car and say, our kids are screwed up. Let's not get married. Problem solved, right? We knew we couldn't do that. So we used all of that stuff as a very long introduction to the sports almanac story, which, of course, is classic time travel stuff. You know, what would you do if you could go into the future? Well, I'd get the stock reports for the next 20 years and use that to get rich. Or I'd find out what stock comic book was the most valuable and buy a whole bunch of copies for when I got back. In any case, we get over the story of Marty's kids relatively quickly and turn it into this story about Biff stealing the sports almanac. And that quote, in turn, I feel like completely exemplifies how they fucked up writing this sequel. Because <laughs> it's like, why? <laughs> he even admits it's a way too long introduction to get yeah. to the point where we even deal with the sports almanac. How long is it, Jake? It's like 30 minutes of essentially completely useless plot well it's it's weird because it's completely useless to the rest of the movie but visually and it's thematically the it's the best part which uh i i want to talk about that bob also has the idea that uh they also go to the old west because if you just generationally like look at bob gale and bob zemeckis cowboy movies were the marvel movies of their childhood it, it's just an just inescapable part of their collective animation of, I'm sorry, uh, imagination. And it's just exact. Like you will not let boomers will not let go of the Western. They, they, yeah, they, they just, that was more of a, an, again, kind of a selfish thing for them. And also it was, it was compounded by the fact that apparently Zemeckis had asked Michael J. Fox where he'd go in time. And he also said the old West Gail said, I said to him, I don't know if that's going to work because that means we're suddenly going to have to introduce a whole bunch of different characters three quarters of the way through the picture. We talked that through and came up with this idea of Doc falling in love. The real powerful aspect of the character arc was that in doing so, Doc and Marty sort of changed places dramatically where Doc is becoming more irresponsible and Marty is constantly telling Doc, you can't do this. But the first version I wrote just didn't have enough room to breathe. And the only reason why we're talking about the third movie right now is because it actually was a 225-page tome that was written by Gale that, in hindsight, he looked at it and was like, oh, this should just be two different movies. Mm -hmm. 
uh, an actually yeah, 225 page screenplay, which is insane. Eventually, you know, they talk to Spielberg, they whittle it down to 185 pages. Uh, and finally, they get like the numbers from the budgeting office at Universal. And like if they did like to film just uh, Back to the Future Part Two would be 50 million dollars to film both movies at the same time would be 70 million dollars. And inspired by a uh, movie series that had three Musketeers and a sequel that was filmed at the same time called Four Musketeers, <laughs> they were like, we could do this. We could film both at the same time and get both of them done. So Gail goes to Sid Scheinberg. He says, so we went to the studio and Sid was annoyed, shall we say. First of all, that Roger Rabbit was taking so much longer to finish than he thought it would, which impacted the start of production for Back to the Future Part 2. So it was one of those good news, bad news conversations. The bad news was that we would not have the second film in theaters for the summer of 1989. The good news was that we would have it in theaters in time for Christmas 1989, and Back to the Future Part 3 would be in theaters for the summer of 1990. Scheinberg just told us we were completely Completely out of her fucking minds. He just wanted us to make the movie, we promised. So this forced Gale to write a new version of the script that, as you said, it combines the two movies for 165 pages. They budgeted out to $55 million. And then Gale said, and in our next meeting, Sid said, I'm not making the most expensive movie ever made. That's not <laughs> going to happen. We said, you can make one movie for $55 million, or you can make two movies for a total of $70 million. That's when he got it. You know, when in doubt, follow the money. And follow the money, all of these people did. I would say to a fault because <laughs> now they have two movies on their hands. They have no time to make them good scripts. Hop, hop, hooray. Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You know what I mean? Not only do they have less time to write, but they have less time to edit because Zemeckis is being pulled in a million different directions. It's, it's lining up to be a little bit of a clusterfuck. Uh, and throwing a wrench into it is America's favorite weirdo, uh, Crispin Glover, who, um, uh, through his agent, demands a unprecedented million dollars to return for these movies, earning him as much money as Michael J. Fox and a like thousand percent increase in his uh, pay from the first one. Okay, now we have to play the guessing game of who is lying, who is telling the truth, because that is refuted by Crispin Glover. Crispin Glover says that he was offered $125,000, which was less than half what the returning cast members were getting. However, Gail has stated that Glover's demands were excessive. Glover says he was not trying to make as much as Michael J. Fox for this movie. He just wanted to get equal pay to the other actors in the film. Uh, th he went on Howard Stern. He went on Opie and Anthony. Talked a bunch of different game about a bunch of different stuff. And the one thing that makes me believe him, or at least he's either a giant hypocrite or this contradicts everything, 
Because the other thing about it, apparently, was that he, at least Glover said this, he had a philosophical disagreement with the first film's message, with McFly, quote, fixing his present state by getting a nice car and being in a much richer family, as opposed to the true fix, which, according to Glover, felt should be love. Glover said, I, I said to Robert Zemeckis, I thought it was not a good idea for our characters to have a monetary reward, because it basically makes the moral of the movie that money equals happiness. And, quote, Zemeckis got really mad. So, to me... Which Christmas Glover are we dealing with? The one that's demanding a million dollars or the one that feels that the ending should have been about love and not about money? Because those two things don't really click with me at the same There's time. There's anecdotes of him being difficult on sets, of him missing, of like... He's a weird uh, guy. Missing his mark. He is a weird guy. He would ad-lib stuff. Um, he would like put his foot down at weird points. Like the ending, he wanted his character to be like a bohemian novelist instead <laughs> of like... a. But, like, that wouldn't have read as richer and therefore happier, so they put him in a polo shirt with a tennis racket. Uh, what lends credence, I feel, to uh, Crispin's uh, complaints is uh, the fact that how they handled his replacement, Jeffrey Wiseman. <laughs> yes. Because Jeffrey can – I, can I launch into this? All right. Before you launch into it, I will say this. Here's my new theory that just popped in my head about Glover. Mm -hmm. He had a philosophical disagreement with everybody on set, with the makers of the movie, at least, right? So, in returning, he said, the only thing these guys understand is money. They don't understand <laughs> philosophical disagreements. So, I'm going to just demand so much money that they have to refuse me. So, yeah. I, that I don't have to do it. That actually may have been the truth there. I think I just corrected. Either way, yes. I please. mean, he fired his agent and, like, hired new agents just to keep, like, the line on his price. And yeah, he would yeah. never back down, never take a account I think maybe it was, a, it was a play for him to force himself out of the film as he didn't really enjoy the experience. So, yes, let's talk about it, Jake. Give me, give so, me the lowdown on Jeffrey Weissman. And th his refusal alters the entire shape of the movie. Like, we probably wouldn't even have... The weird, dark, as the people uh, in the Back to the Future community call it, the biff horrific timeline, if it wasn't for the fact that they're like, well, we have to kill George McFly. So, like, already, like, the, sh the entire, like, shape of this movie is just going in a weird direction without him. To replace him, they don't hire another actor. They're not recasting the role. Their explicit purpose is just to have basically an, a glorified body double hopefully confuse the audience into thinking it's the same actor in the weirdest way possible with that upside down shit. So Jeffrey Wiseman is a minor theater actor. His literal gig at the time was as a celebrity impersonator at the universal theme parks where he would like dress up like Charlie Chaplin or like other like famous people and just engage with um, guests they send him with a bunch of people to an audition, all who just vaguely have the same body type and height as Crispin Glover. They apply uh, Crispin Glover's original old man makeup uh, prosthetics, like the actual ones that were on his face. They don't even make new ones for him. And they just do a test and they go, that's our Crispin and give him the job. He is paid $20,000, which for him as again, a like wannabe theater actor and and like theme park impressionist is a bunch of money, but he doesn't know what he's in for. And as soon as he's on set, things are weird. Michael J. Fox famously gets a look at him in the uh, weird like 
uh, Crispin Glover prosthetics and just goes, huh, Crispin isn't going to like this. Leia Thompson is supposedly really cold to him because she had a working relationship with Crispin Glover and never appreciated that like she had to work with this guy on set. Like second unit directors would never say his name. They'd be like, cut Leia, cut Crispin. Like they just would not acknowledge that he is his own actor. And uh, one of the weirdest things they do, besides like trying to keep him out of focus, always relegating him to the background, always with these weird prosthetics, is during the future sequence, when it's time for the whole McFly family to come in, they use this upside down back brace rig. So weird. So that the audience can't really, because it's it's a famous effect that like when you look at a face upside down, like things get kind of jumbled and you don't really notice if something's amiss. The amount of cost, like the entire, that entire set is like completely fixed with rails and wires to just keep him upside down. Every shot is laborious because they have to make sure the movement is smooth and that he doesn't get tangled. And the crew does not really, he does not care. He's not cared about so much that like, rather than go through the trouble of hooking him up and unhooking him when he's not needed, they just set up this weird like bench so that he's kind of like, his legs are still up in the air, but he can at least like flatten his back out while in the rig. Mm. Like kind of like you're doing like a uh, Batman sit-ups, you know what I mean? Uh, there's an anecdote that is highly disputed, but famously, uh, uh, supposedly, Steven Spielberg visits the set, sees him in the whole rig, taps him on the leg and goes, hey, Crispin, guess you got your million and walks away. <laughs> so this whole time he's underpaid, he's disrespected, he's just like totally fucked on this. And again, like so much of the movie is just about like, you know, making sure that the audience knows that he is dead, he is lame, he is weird. And just never giving the character his due. And so much of the movie before all this happened was about like the 60s and about still George and uh, Elaine's relationship. It's really just kind of fucked. Um, Supposedly, uh, Crispin actually calls Jeffrey and they share their experiences. And he talks about all the embarrassments and the way that they talked about Crispin on set. And Crispin uses that as evidence for a lawsuit against Universal, against Bob Zemeckis, against all this, um, they settle for $500,000. And poor Jeffrey Weissman is blacklisted because he blabbed. And people Uh. are like, now he's, uh, he literally says that he was hired for an acting gig and then got a call and was like, I'm sorry, I've just been told I can't hire you by a casting agent because... He's now known as someone that'll blab on you and leave you open to lawsuits. And it did add to uh, clauses in the Screen Actors Guild Collective dealing with keeping producers from doing these sorts of things in the things in the future films or in future films. And Glover's case was key to personality rights for actors and the usage of their likeness, which is more relevant than ever. Actually, it really connects to today with the deep fake stuff special effects technology. I mean, it's more it's easier to do that than ever. So it's good that this went down when it did because. We need these legalities in place. I mean, it's completely atrocious to take someone's likeness, not pay them, just kind of go around them just because, you know, you guys had a disagreement about how much they should be paid or whatever. I mean, you have to fix that in a different way. So unbelievable, unbelievable I mean, it's in modern terms, uh, Terrence Howard 
was replaced as Rhodey in the Iron Man franchise because he was kind of uh, just the way that actor compensation kind of worked out. He had a very sweet deal in the first Iron Man and they didn't want to pay it for the sequels. They wanted a better deal for the actors. So they replaced him with Don Cheadle and it was awkward, but the character is still a character. Yeah. And all they had to do is just cast a different character and I and it wouldn't have been as good, but because the only problem is, I mean, Crispin Glover, like I said, Crispin Glover is such so specific in the in his everything and his mannerisms and everything. Like he's such a standout in the film. I think that's why I, I, it was hard for them to even imagine someone else doing the role. But that's he made himself necessary. And then they tried to fuck him and then they got fucked. And so. speaking of replacements, uh, Claudia Wells, who was Jennifer in the first yes. movie, was replaced by Elizabeth Shue. Uh, somewhat tragically, because her mother was dying of cancer and um, she just could not yeah, commit. Yeah, that was, that was the personal reasons. I, I just That was the personal reason. reason. So. And weirdly enough, Elizabeth Shue was cast, and during the filming of the two movies together, she had her own insane family tragedy when her brother died in an mm-hmm. accident uh, in front of her eyes, and she says that the entire filming was a blur to her, because there was so much grief and like trauma in her family at the time. It's just kind of, um, you know, these are just the weird concessions that you have to do when you're trying to make these fantastical stories with real people. And uh, so, yeah, they had to reshoot the closing scenes from the first film for the start of part two. There are a f- it's, it's nearly a shot to shot match, but there are a couple of inconsistencies. Marty wears a watch in the sequel, not in the first movie, stuff like that. There's like a little bit of a pause before Doc Brown says a certain line that wasn't in the in the first movie, like little things like that. But for the most part, it's the same. To and the they established stuff notice. with Biff and yeah. like uh, to, to the, the point I, I never even noticed, to be honest with you, that it was a different. Uh, it was a reshoot. But either way, let's get into the fun futurism stuff that they did. I, I think I would love to yes. talk about the fun stuff for, so, uh, for a little bit. <laughs> this is this burned a hole in my memory. Like there's something about this vision of the future. Uh, Maybe it was the Pizza Hut tie-in where they gave out cool futuristic sunglasses with kids' meals. Maybe it was just... It's such a childlike version of the future. Yes. Where everything you recognize is still around, but just a little bit better. The bottles of soda are a little bit cooler looking. The movies now are in 3D without glasses. The cars can fly. Your sneakers... This is such a baby brain thing. Yes. Your sneaker, you don't have to tie your, sh- that's a seven-year-old's concern. That you, that they fixed the problem of having to tie your own shoelaces. But they wanted, they didn't want it to make any attempt at accuracy. They wanted it to be cartoonish and silly, which does work so well for kids. Zemeckis said, for me, filming the future scenes of the movie were the least enjoyable of making the whole trilogy because I don't really like films that try and predict the future. The only ones I've actually enjoyed were the ones done by Stanley Kubrick, and not even he predicted the PC when he made A Clockwork Orange. So rather than trying to make a scientifically sound prediction that we were probably going to get wrong anyway, we figured, let's just make it funny. However, they do have some, they, they did some research into futurist scientists' visions of what it would be po- what would be possible in, the t- in 2015, uh, from their perspective in the 80s. And they actually do predict a few things that would happen by that year. These include drones used as news cameras, cameras being all over the place for surveillance, widescreen flat panel television sets mounted on walls with multiple channel viewing, smart home technology, video chat, hands-free video games, talking animated billboards, tablet computers with fingerprint scanners, head-mounted displays, 
Payment on personal portable devices, kind of like Apple Pay, but we still don't have that damn delicious instant pizza. Come on! I want that delicious pizza. I don't know why. I don't know why that pizza looks so fucking good. Uh, A lot of it has to do with the work of uh, Rick Carter, who is a concept artist, who specifically kind of integrated... Considering how much the rest of the movie, like, even when they're in the, like, cool future, like, so much of the cool future is, like, or they're in, they're not even in the Biff bad 80s. Like, even once they leave the Hill Valley Town Square, things are a little bit run down. Things are a little bit darker. Things are a little bit worse. But, like, the big open pond in the middle of the town square, the uh, open-ended, like, futuristic architecture merging seamlessly with the old courthouse, the the uh, just verticality of even a small town square where there's, like, storefronts on top of storefronts. Everything is, like, clean and bright and yeah. pedestrian-friendly. Anti-Blade Runner, essentially, is what he was going for, because at the time, Blade Runner was, like, the vision of the future that was the most popular with its smoke and its chrome. So, and also, by the way, they had no script to work with and only the note that the setting would be 30 years into the future featuring, quote, something called hoverboards, end quote, according to art director John Bell. So they, again, it's like, and we'll get into the editing later, but they're like editing while they're, sh- while they're finishing the movie and then making the sequel, the third movie, like everything's happening on top of each other. So no one, there's no clear vision unified vision because of that in a lot of ways costume director joanna johnston also did a lot because that like kind of honestly to this day that like 80s future aesthetic with the plastic clothes and the bright colors and all that is all her and she was born in london and like basically she just took everything that a brit would find garish about american fashion the idea that you know everyone walked around in sneakers instead of loafers that people wore jeans and like Instead of khakis that like people wore sport like winter coats and like there was no the just like just the opposite of like formal wear. Biff and his crew look amazing, man. Like all those costume choices are fantastic. And also there's the Nike Air Mag shoes, which Nike would go on to release a version of in 2008 referred to by fans as the Air McFly. In 2009, they filed a patent for self-lacing shoes, which resembles the film version. And in 2016, a limited edition self-lacing Air Mag was released called the Hyper Adapt 1.0. There's video of this thing. It costs thousands of dollars. It is kind of amazing to see because they really did nail the look of the what it was like in the film. But anyways, those shoes are... Uh, absolutely dope. <laughs> and then, can we talk about the hoverboards? The hoverboards, Jake! The hoverboards. My God, I wanted a hoverboard after seeing this movie as a kid. I mean, talk about a, a personal gush. I don't think I can gush too much personally about the second and third movie because of, you're right. We, I, we, I think we both felt a little off about it. But man, I can gush about them damn hoverboards, dude. I mean, I was ta- I remember going to school, talking with my friends... And the rumor that Zemeckis started, so Zemeckis started a rumor that they actually had real hoverboards. You say start a rumor, I would consider it uh, bald-faced lying to children on national television, (laughs) because that's what he did. He just went on and was like, yep, they're real, but we can't give them to you because your parents won't let you have them. And that, of course, became truth to all children. The the toy companies were afraid of uh, parent groups suing them because they're too dangerous. Of course, the total lie. there was no, like trombone music or a rim shot or a wink there was nothing uh it was a i think it was a uh special that aired on cbs or abc 
And it was behind the scenes building up hype before the new movie after an airing of the original movie. And, and, and yeah, and they had footage of real hoverboards, quote unquote, on the DVD extras as well, just to really sell this giant lie. The amount of individual effects that go into the, uh, the hoverboard scenes are amazing. The there's Some of them are really simple, like... Uh, when Marty just throws down the Mattel hoverboard and it just kind of like, wom, 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 yeah. wom. There's just little metal wires on the bottom of the board that like bend and flex that like you can't see from the perspective of the camera. Uh, some of them, like the pit bull uh, that like pops out are done with models and then green screened in. And the dumbest thing, the dumbest, the dumbest I felt was when watching back uh, footage, I always knew like, oh yeah, it's on wires. But I never fully realized, oh, the hoverboards are just screwed to the actor's feet. The it's the the people are on wires. Yeah. I, and I know it sounds dumb, but like in my head, it was always just these people walking around with on wired hoverboards actually riding, riding them. Yeah, I will say there have been several attempts in the past several years to create an actual hoverboard. You definitely look this up, by the way. Uh, there's one from Lexus which needs a track embedded with magnets for it to, for it to run on. Uh, and it does look really cool, but obviously it's not really like a, an actual usable thing. When I worked for a website that I've talked about several times, uh, I was on the hoverboard beat. <laughs> and not only did the Lexus hoverboard uh, secretly run on a magnetic track that was embedded beneath the concrete where they showcase the hoverboard, the hoverboard itself had to have a reservoir of liquid nitrogen because the diamagnetic core of it that kept it aloft would not work unless it was at like below zero degrees. Yes, it's insane. Like there's never I mean, I mean and then when you rewatch it as an adult, he's he's pedaling it like a skateboard, but he's just like moving your foot on air obviously just wouldn't push anything forward. Like the way that they displayed it being used was just an absolute impossibility. The the hilarious is that it just doesn't work on water. But the the lie was so powerful that the um, general manager of Industrial Light and Magic actually got inundated with phone calls and mail from desperate parents huh. that desperately was like, listen, I don't care if my kid dies. He's got like we need to get him a hoverboard for Christmas. <laughs> yeah, they definitely uh, overestimated the concern of parents for their children with that lie that Zavega stole. Another technology from Industrial Light and Magic was uh, this new computer-based system where frame by frame, they trained a ni 1990 computer to like blur the surrounding pixels every frame where the wires could be seen so that it would seem they would just erase the wires digitally, which is a very like proto version of the technology that is now used all over the place in modern films. Uh, they got like a special Academy Award technical thing for having revolutionized that system. And then they also uh, incorporated major upgrades in digital compositing and a motion control camera system that enabled them to shoot that scene in which Michael J. Fox plays three separate characters, Marty Sr., Marty Jr., and the weirdest fuck Marlene that I didn't even realize was Michael J. Fox. Uh, oh, you're talking about the Vistaglide system, a computer-controlled camera that by using precise servo motor uh, movement and pre programmed uh, identical sweeps allowed multiple exposures on a giant chunk of film so that as long as the background remained constant, 
the same movement can seamlessly expose the same actor twice without any uh, hint that it's being filmed twice. The key is movement. Like they've been able to composite the same person on a screen before, like, like parent, the parent like trap the old parent or trap, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or even on sitcoms when like Urkel and Stefan Urkel yes. were in the same a, shot, and it's clearly a fixed camera situation. But this was a huge upgrade because they were actually able to move the camera, which just gave it this much more realistic feel of wow, this these people are really in this room together. So that was another cool thing. Definitely ILM doing big flexes for Back to the Future Part Two, and that is definitely the most impressive thing about this film it wins uh for tech best technical of all three of the movies for sure fantastic job there so let me tell you a story that will completely taint your hoverboard memories for the rest of your life the culmination of the big hoverboard chase is obviously uh when biff using the uh pitbull you know you you need power uh, and he accidentally launches himself through the plate glass of the courthouse with his goons and changes the time frame. Uh, famously, it's it's USA Today that actually is the newspaper, which is weird because that's a national newspaper. Yeah. And the idea that a national newspaper would, would be like, a, yeah, local. local hooligans embarrassed. <laughs> so one of the stunt women... Uh, is a woman by the name of Cheryl Wheeler. Oh, right. This is is about to get uh, dark. I don't even know this story, but it's about to get very dark, apparently. Jake, take it. uh, I forget the name of the girl gang member character, the one who grabs uh, Michael J. Fox by the crotch and is like, ain't you got the fucking dick for this, you fucking weird shithead? Um, I'm paraphrasing the film, obviously. She was brought in at the last minute because the previous stunt woman who uh, was signed up for this uh, was not satisfied with the how the stunt was being set up because it involved a very complicated set of motions where the actors who are on uh, basically hooked up to a giant crane and being swung for those big on-camera hoverboard movements, uh, the idea is someone on the ground seeing their momentum releases them from the crane letting their momentum carry them through the sugar glass windows and they land on a airbag safely in the courthouse. And there's just weird little hiccups. They have to set it up. It takes too long. They set it back down. And the original stunt woman is just not a sh- like, she's not confident that like they've done enough practice runs. They uh, did a test with sandbags and they kept missing the mark. She's out. Cheryl Wheeler is fresher in the industry, desperate to make a good impression. And the whole time, these uh, issues keep coming up. Um, She keeps noticing that, like, the setups aren't the same from rehearsal to rehearsal. They keep getting, like, caught up on things. The guy responsible for uh, triggering the crane release is moving spots, and he's not getting his timing right. And every time she speaks up, uh, some of the older stunt coordinators are like, Listen, are you game or not? Like, you know, you're being a real squeaky wheel here. And she just talks about this very heartbreakingly. I feel like, especially if you're uh, a woman, the idea that, you know, the older people around you, your seniors, your peers aren't taking your concerns seriously. You don't feel hurt. This story really resonates, I'm sure, with a lot of people. Um, You know, hey, are you going to be like the last one? Like, we thought you were cool. We thought you were down. 
they introduce a new effect, which is a extra uh, poof of like sparks and rockets that's supposed to be Biff's hoverboard flying by. And finally, after giving the misgivings, she's like basically given an ultimatum, like you doing this or not. It takes her so long to get in the makeup chair for this stunt that like they get a guy to replace her and he sees a dude on her spot in like her costume. And she's like, what the fuck? And they're like, oh, we thought you chickened down. She's like, I didn't, I didn't fucking chicken. Like she's not feeling well. So the stunt goes and immediately she realizes she's veering to the left. She's not going to hit the sugar glass window. The guy moved to behind the sugar glass window, which is not optically clear. There's a lot of uh, weird reflections. It's a darker tone. He does not have a good sight line to her. And she hits the left pillar of the courthouse, slams right against it. For a split second, she thinks, oh, I'm about to die. But she hits it. And just from the sheer, like the rigging she has and the fact that her costume has all these pads and stuff already, the damage is minimal. She actually feels like, okay. And then they cut the cord and she's not inside the courthouse and there are no airbags beneath her. And she falls 30 feet straight onto the concrete. Mm. Her face is caved in. She breaks arms. She breaks legs. And one of her other stunt people describes the horror when he realizes she's not in the courtroom with him once the shot was done and he sees her on the ground, a pool of blood just growing near her head. Mm. She is taken to an emergency room. The recovery is really long. She has years of uh, facial reconstruction surgery. And worst of all, the studio just does not cover her medical expenses. She's given bare bones workman's comp and she has to basically lawyer up and sue the studio to just even get like a chance of her life back. Everyone is kind of shattered by this. It's like kind of this dark cloud above the production. Universal, weirdly enough, is on the PR front making sure nobody knows about this because a few years prior on another Amblin production, the Twilight Zone movie, they had a bad PR move when all when Vic Morrow got and a bunch of kids got killed. So She's basically suffered in silence for years. Um, and the most terrifying thing of all is her accident is caught on film and it's Ugh. in the movie. If you go and watch the hoverboard chase scene right at that climactic moment when Marty drops into the water, you see her hit the pillar. And then as the goons are crashing through the plate glass window, you can see a lone female form slightly in the background for just a few frames splat against the concrete Man. and it's just in the movie and it's horrifying when you know the truth well at least she lived she she lived um she married uh one of her doctors who helped her recover and oh, wow. then i don't know the full circumstances but in the oh, all right do we have to she was uh <laughs> murdered um in around 2016 yeesh that is uh, fucking brutal, Jake. So we had a bit of a different experience with research this week. I'm just sitting here being like, they should have made the third one, the second one. And you're just like silently weeping at this tragic tale. That is awful. It's uh, it's honestly a waking horror story. Yeah, it's terrifying. <laughs> if, you, if, you are, if you like read her 
blow by blow of how it went down. It is just truly t- knowing something is wrong, uh, having nobody listen to you, like and then having nightmare. this devastating moment in the film. Yeah. It's in the movie. That's so wild. Well, uh, I'm just going to try to make a U-turn here and uh, talk about the whole part. (laughs) Price drop. Time to shop. Get to a Nordstrom Rack store today for first dibs on new markdowns. Now score even more, up to 70% off brands everyone loves at Nordstrom Rack. Denim, dresses, sneakers, tops, and more. Plus, get genius deals on jackets, sweaters, and boots for the whole family. Shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and save up to 70% with new markdowns. But hurry, deals this great won't last. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. <laughs> Ba-da-na-na-na-na. And so in the Back to the Future theme, if you notice the core three tones is bum, bum, bum. That's what's known as a tritone, which actually kind of uh, doesn't resolve as efficiently as a as any other kind of major note would. And it's actually kind of interesting because it's thematically a complete like kind of reinforcement of the narrative where Marty is always out of time. He's always like in the wrong. He's literally a fish out of water or a fish out of time loop. And he's always struggling to like make things right. And by having that tritone in the core theme of the entire movie franchise, it works really well. It actually, that sense of unease is carried throughout the movie because in Marty's shoes, something is off. He needs to literally resolve the notes that are being played. Um, And only at the end of the movie does that note actually kind of, literally when George McFly and Elaine actually like kiss at the Enchantment Under the Sea dance, do we actually get a a resolution to those notes in the soundtrack? Alan Sylvester, you did a very good job. Absolutely, and that has nothing to do with that woman who almost died. Also, uh, there is the whole weird part where Marty now cannot help himself if he he gets called a chicken or yellow and must fight, and that was tacked on in the sequel. Um, And this is because he's sort of flawless in the first film, like we discussed before, because it's George McFly's story. And he has the arc, not Marty or Doc Brown. And, of course, they become flawed later. Gail said, we looked back at the first movie and there was this bit of hot-headedness in him when he almost gets into these fights with Biff. And if we were redoing the first movie, we could have easily had used the chicken thing and provoked him in a way that wouldn't have changed it at all. So that's why we decided to turn the volume up on Marty's hot-headedness and wanted to make it really clear that it's like the Three Stooges when you play Pop Goes the Weasel. Curly goes crazy. But that's another example of showing that we did not have a sequel in mind in the beginning. So, uh, yeah, another just very tacked-on thing just to speak again towards how weird this sequel was in terms of their approach. Uh, a headcanon presented to Bob Gale later from a fan was that the Marty in the sequel was raised by a father that learned to stand up for himself and not let anybody push him around, which is how his new trait formed. So having the confident George McFly father 
gave him this flaw of whenever he's called chicken, he has to go. That's to not how that works. That's <laughs> it's not, not how it works, but I kind of thought it was cool. Either way, it took them two years just to finish building the sets and rework the script so that shooting could start. This happened in February 1989. The third film started production as soon as the sequel's done. There was like a three-week break, and then they jumped back into it. And there was even a point where they were finishing the one movie and starting the other one at the same time. Zemeckis would sleep only a few hours a day over that time. Oh, this is insane. Um, so while there, so like while back to the future part three is filming, like for like an average day on the train chase and part three, Zemeckis would be shooting the train sequence then uh, he would take a private plane back to Los Angeles where he would go to Burbank and dub the sequel. He would then eat dinner, make notes, uh, fall asleep in a hotel, just like Michael J. Fox in the first movie would get shuttled back to the airport in the morning. It's insane. It's yeah. Yeah, that part's completely crazy. Um, Zemeckis was, yeah, the Michael J. Fox in this, in the t- in terms of working schedule, in the in the two sequels for sure, he just very little sleep, constant travel, and so the movie comes out the day before Thanksgiving in 1989. It breaks records, but did not have that box office longevity that the first film had. The end of the film has a full trailer, as we mentioned before, for part three, but it deserves to be mentioned again because that is so wild and it feels so jarring and weird when you go back and watch it. So while they're editing the second film, they're shooting the third installment. Zemeckis is doing location shots in Sonora, uh, California. Gail was in Los Angeles, and he's traveling back and forth to look at the dailies and oversee the final dub of the sequel, and while also shooting in various parts of Northern California. Dean Cundy, the cinematographer, re- referred to the photography as, quote, a dream, and much of the crew were thrilled to get to shoot a Western. This sounds like it was a rough go doing this Back to the Future Part Two. But if nothing else, for Back to the Future Part 3, the cast was happy for the more chilled out pace and uh, the scenery. The crew was thrilled to be making a Western and working with those beautiful locations and building those amazing sets and all that good stuff. So this is an interesting thing where um, there's a YouTube channel called Gigawatts where I they do an amazing breakdown of the soundtrack. The... Alan Silvestri was given the uh, the directive from Bob Zemeckis to make the soundtrack to Back to the Future Part 1 as epic as possible, specifically because what when he was doing the editing of the final footage, he realized that the movie was like too many tight shots. There wasn't like a big epic scope. There wasn't a lot of wide shots. There wasn't a lot of like big sweeping establishing shots. He really wanted something that screamed like, this is a big time movie. You are experiencing a Cinerama experience to make up for the fact that Back to the Future was like weirdly intimate as a movie in terms of how it was shot. And Back to the Future Part 2, so many amazing special effect shots, revolutionary effect shots between the model work, the prosthetic work, the uh, Vista Glide multiple exposures for the double work. Um, the hoverboards, like all these insane pain in the asses, like just technical nightmares. Um, there's a moment where, uh, when, uh, Jennifer is getting picked up by the two lady cops in part, uh, in part two, uh, there was a whole sequence where there was supposed to be a flying cop car descending 
from the sky and that was like almost killed the two actresses in it because like the forklift they had it rigged to like bent and broke under the pressure like all these crazy things happening and part three has so much more breathing room has so much more wide vista shots no like barely any like crazy special effects no crazy gadgets or if they are crazy gadgets, it's just a big dumb thing that's shooting like fake fog and it makes a single ice cube. Like all of the things that made Back to the Future as an aesthetic are now missing because they don't have this weird like pressure cooker of both practical effects and just like the way that they're shooting it like a Western isn't the same. And yes, it's more relaxing for everyone they describe it as almost a club med like atmosphere where they were like setting up hot tubs and like, uh, you know, like uh, saloons for them, for the cast and crew to like relax in. But it just feels like a different movie. Yeah, 100%. I, and and it, but that makes so much sense because they're exhausted from making the second one. They like need to just chill out and they're in this beautiful s- scenario to do so. I mean, it's so whatever it is, it doesn't it doesn't feel like the same movie. And like, and what they add to it is just kind of like, okay, they're on like once you have hover like flying cars, a horseback chase is just not. They might as well filmed it in black and white at this point. Like I, I just remember being a kid and being like snoring. But, but also Mary Steenburgen enters the battle, so there you go, or joins the battle as it were. Uh, with most of the cast returning, the big newbie, of course, Mary Steenburgen. Um, she plays Doc Brown's love interest, Clara Clayton. Steenburgen moved to Manhattan in 1972 to study acting bro- uh, and broken big when she was discovered by Jack Nicholson, who cast her in the film Going South in 1978. I think the weird thing about her career that ties into this one is that her she then really, really becomes like more of a household name acting across from Malcolm McDowell in the film Time After Time, which gets her a ton of critical acclaim. She gets steady work through the 80s, including the comedy Parenthood, showing off her comedy chops. Time After Time weirdly has the same moment in it for Steenburgen's character, which is about H.G. Wells inventing a real time machine to go back and find Jack the Ripper. Steenburgen said, I've had a man from a different time period tell me that he's in love with me, but he has to go back to his own time. My response in both cases is, of course, disbelief, and I order them out of my life. Afterwards, I find out I was wrong, and that in fact, the man is indeed from another time, and I go after him to profess my love. It's a pretty strange feeling to find yourself doing the same scene so many years apart for the second time in your career. I think that is so weird. That's such a weird actor thing. But it uh, makes me want to go watch uh, Time After Time. So I love Malcolm McDowell and the plot sounds fantastic. Supposedly, Christopher Lloyd had worked with her in a previous movie where there was like smoldering tension between the two of them in their younger years. And that was never realized. And so it was like a, it was like meeting an old lover when they got to be on screen together. And it was also Christopher Lloyd's first on screen kiss. That's insane. Yeah. That is insane that it's how many well, dozens of movies. Well, he's never been a love interest, though. He's always been like a weirdo kind of thing. Yeah. 
So that makes sense. And also, she was actually super hesitant to take the part, but it was her kids that hounded her to do it, and that's why. Which I always love that when the kids get all excited. That's that's a cool mom move. But either way, uh, another cool thing was they also brought in a few veterans of the Western genre, including Pat Buttram, who was known for his character on the TV series Green Acres, as well as his being the voice of the Sheriff of Nottingham in the Disney's Robin Hood, which is fantastic. I love his work in that movie. Henry Carey Jr. performed in more than 90 films, most significantly a number of John Ford Westerns. Dub Taylor performed in a crazy amount of films, most of which were Westerns. Some were comedies, and they all play those saloon old timers in the movie. Oh, that's amazing. They feel like they were they came with the set. Yeah, it's amazing. They're like it's awesome. that saloon is like one of the most like well-realized old-timey saloon sets ever built. It's like it feels really like my favorite scenes are the ones that take place in there for some reason. And of course, most of it's traditional Western stuff, but you do have that amazing, highly technical train stuff at the end. I was going to say another great addition to the movie is uh, ZZ Top <laughs> uh, doing the uh, Huey Lewis role in this one. Uh-huh. Uh, the actual single that came out of it is called Double Back, and it's okay. It's it's not like life changing, but the like weird hootenanny version of the song that's played during the dance sequence mm. is one of the ca- weirdly catchiest things I've ever heard in my entire life. Pretty great. Mary, if you can go to the Back to the Future soundtrack and look up Double Back, and it's like the fiddle version, not the music video. Not the like full rock song. Just play a little bit of that. This will be stuck in your head for like the rest of your life. So the film comes out May 25th, 1990. Similarly has this pretty big drop off in the box office after the first week, just like the sequel. They did not have that longevity that that first film caught uh, in terms of box office sticking around as number one in the box office. But critics and fans alike did feel this one was more in with the first film, generally better than the second. And this is where I want to do a little backseat franchising a little bit more, okay? I think what they should have done was A... Is replace the weird kid actor who played Vern... Uh, Doc Brown's son at the end sequence, who is clearly on camera doing the come here hand motion and then pointing at his dick <laughs> um, while looking directly at Elizabeth's shoe. <laughs> uh, supposedly, the popular explanation for what the fuck is happening uh, is that he was a child actor who had to go to the bathroom and that was the, like, I have to go oh, potty that's sign. that's funny. But. It looks but like come here, suck my it, dick. Yeah. It looks come here, suck my dick. And I still I've, I did so much Googling trying to find out what the fuck happened to this kid. Has anyone even tried to find out the true story? And it's a goddamn mystery. But it's the second fucked up thing that's in these movies that is just on camera and will never be erased. So I think I, I don't know how to actually do this in the script. I'd have to it'd be a crazy it'd be surgery to the whole thing in order to get this to happen based on how they ended the last film. But I think, if anything, they should have made the third movie the second movie and then made the third movie the insane future movie where they completely jump the shark because who gives a shit it's the third movie. But also mm-hmm. take out all that weird dystopian stuff, take out all that convoluted plot stuff. Honestly, what they should have done was uh, either do the Avengers Endgame thing or do the Sports Almanac thing. 
I'd get rid of the sports almanac thing though. I think it is just like way too much for one simple little plot thing. And it, it just totally gets blown out of proportion and becomes Biff's movie. I don't think it should ever become Biff's movie. He needs to be a cartoonish bully, not a murderer, even though he is an R-wordist in the first movie mm. to a certain degree. He's a sexual offender, which is not, so it's already pretty dark. But it's the 1950s, so everybody's just like, yeah, that's what they did back then. I guess the first movie is like cartoonish, but it just feels like they made it so cartoonish in the second movie that it just all... And then in the third movie, Buford is like also like doing the dumb guy thing again. Yeah, it just makes it all, t- it's too much. It's too much. I don't love the lookalike stuff either. By the way, isn't it so funny that, like, how would Marty and Lorraine look like they did in the West? Like, it it, it presupposes that we looked exactly like our forefathers, even though the family tree is, like, so spread out by that point. Well, it makes no sense because if Lorraine isn't a McFly... That's what then I'm saying. she wouldn't have any, any yeah, genetic identity. she wouldn't identity. have any identity whatsoever. She's not in the mix, so why is Lorraine playing Supposedly, that part? Supposedly, the role of Seamus McFly was something that they had set up for Crispin Glover mm. as, like, another, like, come on, please, like... Also, like, just pay Crispin Glover a million dollars and just get it over with. Here, hold on. This might be a weird thing, but I feel like the movies would have been better if they had given um, Leah Thompson... Even more comically large prosthetic boobs. Oh, yeah, that's right. We didn't even talk about those yams. I feel like through my modern eyes, I would not have even registered that they're that even comically large. I feel like I'm so inundated by just like bopping yabos left and right in our modern culture that like it's not even that big of a punchline yeah, that her well. breasts are slightly larger. They're not big This is room. normal and not creepy for me to talk about. It's entertaining and people like she it. She did as a laugh keep that. She kept that prosthetic. Correct. And like to like display it in her house. In the book, she talks about how she would be when they were doing the makeup and the prosthetic work for part two. uh, She would often be like not be in wardrobe yet. So she would just be topless, quote unquote. And people would walk into the room and be like, oh, thinking they had walked in on her naked. Uh, So there are, of course, some other properties. I think the movies are the main draw here. But but briefly, we'll run through these. There's, of course, the cartoon series. There was a French-American animated TV series that ran for two seasons on CBS from 91 to 92. The series takes place after the movies. However, Bob Gale has stated that this is more like an alternate timeline sort of thing, not canon uh, per se. This show is so fucking weird. It's you can so find weird. it online. Um, the, it uses the characters of Jules and Vern from the end as like wacky kids. Uh, the, the plot is basically they go somewhere. Uh, and there's always a tannin, and whether they're in, like, dinosaur times or whether they're in the Salem witch trials, just shenanigans ensue. Marty's kind of a weird dick. Uh, The weirdest thing about this show, the one that just really blows my mind, is the episodes are bookended by live-action segments of Christopher Lloyd as uh, Doc Brown, kind of vaguely explaining the themes of the episode. And then once the episode starts, the voice of Doc Brown is done by Dan Castellanata, Homer Simpson, doing a reasonable impression. But it's like literally you would hear Christopher Lloyd's voice being like, ah, yes, that's that's right. I remember it was just like yesterday when this happened. And then they would cut to Doc Brown and he would start talking and be like, hello, I am Doc Brown. Like it's It's just a completely different voice actor. 
The weirdest thing is the end segments would always uh, have Christopher Lloyd doing a science experiment, kind of Mr. Wizard style. And as we discussed in a previous episode, his lab assistant that would act out the experiments on camera was none other than Bill fucking Nye, the science guy. Yes. Who had kind of just gotten the gig by chance because someone saw him on that Seattle public access comedy show where he was both a terrible comedian and a decent science man. Then, of course, there are the video games. There's some pretty rough licensed games during the Atari NES years. I guess there is a pretty decent Japanese platformer on the SNES that I don't even it's know if we... It's so weird if you want... Considering... I'm, it's the Back to the Future games are like classic YouTube angry video game nerd fodder. People have gone into it, and as well as all the weird LGN tie-in Nintendo games. Genuinely awful. I remember trying to play it as a fetus in my at like my buddy's house and just being unable to even get past like any of the levels. Horrible. Then of course there is the Telltale game, another Kaka crossover for this episode, uh, and that is uh, that actually did have Bob Gale lending his assistance, which takes place just after the third film, and they managed to get Michael J. Fox, Christopher Lloyd, Thomas Wilson, and the real cool thing here is they got Claudia Wells, well, who of course couldn't do the sequel. And it was really tragically sad why. And it was really cool that she got to at least reprise her role for the Telltale game. This also takes place not just in the Michael 80s. Michael J. Fox technically did uh, just a guest yeah. on the fifth installment as an older version of some McFly. Right, right, right. Uh, the voice of Michael J. Fox is a guy named A.J. Lacasio, who, I'm sorry, Lacascio, Lacascio, Italian, um, where he, was, he wasn't even a professional voice actor. He was just some office guy office worker whose friend heard about the upcoming game and was like, dude, you do an amazing Michael J. Fox impression. <laughs> nice. You gotta like call them. And that's how we got that gig, which is kind of a weird. The little game story. also does take place in prohibition era America, as well as the late 1800s, but also in the eighties um, and was near the end of telltale's time before they folded. Listen to our telltale episode for that. The comic books. I think there's actually something genuinely cool here for if you did want something else outside of the sequel. So first of all, you're talking about the animated series tie in yes. comic uh, published by Harvey, the same publisher as Casper, the friendly ghost and Richie Rich. Written by Dwayne McDuffie, of all people, who deserves his own episode in the future. I, uh, I was about to say, yes, that did run in 1992. But no, I am talking about the IDW run, which Bob Gale helped with. Gale wanted to address unanswered fan questions like how did Doc and Marty meet and why did Doc's house burn down? It was initially to be a four-issue deal, but it got bigger as it had some popularity, and Gale then wanted to address the final line of the third film. Gale said at the end of Back to the Future Part 3, when the time train flies away, Marty says, where are you going now, Doc? Back to the future? Doc says, nope, already been there. I said to John, well, we've got to pay that off. Doc's already been to the future. We've got to show that. So we uh, we get uh, some really interesting stuff there. Check out that IDW run. There's also this really weird direct-to-video short film directed by Zemeckis and starring Christopher Lloyd as Emmett Brown, which has Doc Brown attempting to destroy the following inventions in order to try to avoid a nuclear meltdown in the country, uh, a nuclear apocalypse, I should say. The food hydrator, self-lacing shoes, Hoverboard and Mr. Fusion Home Energy Reactor. He tries to get all of them removed in order Feels to. Feels like the Fusion Energy Reactor would be the prime would culprit be the main in all one, of this, the other more one, so the, than the. The other stuff makes p kids like lazy, is one of the things. There's like, they all kind of tie in to create this disaster in 2045. Uh, so check that out. That is a weird little thing. There was a 
TV special that was kind of like uh, the live action equivalent of the cartoon All Stars to the Rescue that aired uh, in the 90s, where Christopher Lloyd reprised the role of Doc Brown to try and like stop global warming with the help of America's favorite celebrities and TV stars. It didn't work. It didn't work. We didn't stop global warming because of that. Zemeckis and Bob Gale has have since said they have made sure to halt any attempts at a reboot or another sequel. They feel that this thing isn't this thing without Michael J. Fox and in his current condition, he, they would be unable to do a sequel, which I totally respect. And I really, really appreciate that they did that. I don't really want to see a reboot of Back to the Future, even if it it's is gritty. really neat <laughs> that the bulk of the Back to the Future fan community has over the past few decades, kind of since Michael J. Fox announced his uh, struggle with Parkinson's and the creation of the Fox Foundation, there's so many charity events done by Back to the Future fans, uh, you know, prop auctions, conventions, uh, all the weirdos that like built replica DeLoreans of their own touring the country to raise money to help find a cure for Parkinson's. Um, I know the charity is important in my family. My grandfather suffered from Parkinson's for uh, a long time before he passed. And it's just kind of neat that the the kind of the chosen charity, the goodwill that the fan community has chosen is the uh, is the Fox Foundation for this. Also, October 21st, 2015 was the date used to travel to the future in the sequel and has since been dubbed Back to the Future Day and had people celebrate it. And it's a cool thing. And obviously, it's still just such a staple of our modern day culture. Uh Man, just an amazing, crazy, uneven, wild, but also highly entertaining franchise. Uh, Jake, do you have anything else to say before I wrap it up with a little quote? Um, the movie is huge in Japan. I don't know. I don't know what it is. Maybe the fashion, maybe the kind of way it explores the dark side and idyllic side of America and the promise that it had. Maybe it's just the cool tech. Who knows? Back to the Future. Crazy big in Japan. Um, Mary Steenburgen. Super hot to this day. She's 67. Get get a load of her. Oh, yeah. She's married to Ted Danson. My old friend Myron actually got to do a stay in Japan where at Disney in Japan, he got to play Do- as Doc Brown. In, oh, in these, oh like, Back to the scenes. Future, The Ride, uh, which is a huge formative experience. It's kind of a direct sequel to the movies in its own way. The ride shut down in like 2007, I believe, in both uh, Hollywood and uh, Orlando. So according to Hollywood legend, Back to the Future, the ride, the seed of it started when Steven Spielberg went with his good friend, Mr. Star Wars, George Lucas, to the premiere opening of Star Tours at Disney World. And supposedly when the ride was done, George Lucas looked at Spielberg and said, see, this is really the only kind of thing they can do at Disney, the kind of capabilities and magic they can produce you guys really fucked up by going with universal huh (laughs) and that lit the fire to make back to the future the ride the coolest weird theme park ride where you sit in a thing on pistons and it shakes you around while a movie plays that's fun but uh the only place you can still go on back to the future the ride is in universal studios japan there's also a musical but whatever with that there's it's fine. <laughs> All right, here's I'll my final it. quote, and it is from me. Hi, it's me, Holden. Fucking love these movies, man. Woo! Snap it to a Slim Jim. All right, thank you so much, everybody, for joining us. Uh, you can catch us on Patreon. I love that you committed to reading off I a piece of paper. I wrote it down. I wrote it down. 
Oh my god, it's real. I can't believe that. (laughs) Um, I actually typed it on my notes. Uh, All right, thank you so much for joining us. You can join us also on Patreon for just $5 a month. We do weekly bonus content. It's always a blast. Uh, You can also find us... Uh, no, that's where you can... Oh, you can also find me on twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Ho. I stream Monday, Tuesday, Friday night. Jake! Really gotta push the... Press the flesh for that Patreon, man. It helps us out uh, so much. The podcast cannot exist without it, and we need you guys uh, now more than ever. Uh, and hey, the Sunday Study Group is an amazing hang. Very it is, fun. It's an exclusive conversation live stream where you guys get to watch, play, and talk with us for upcoming episodes, ideas. And it, honestly, without it, like so many things would have gone under the radar for topics like Back to the Future and stuff. 100%. So it's super helpful and super fun. Uh, follow me on Twitter, at BestJakeYoung. Do that. And hey, always remember, keep on whizzing. And never stop bruising. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors, you can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Rack your look for spring at Nordstrom Rack and save up to 60% on brands you love. Rag & Bone, Vince, Marc Jacobs, Adidas, Joes, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. Score new dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and sunglasses, plus updates for the family and home. Get your spring on for less, up to 60% less, today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.